0: My name is Anna Wabari
1: And I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. In November 2021, the UK is hosting the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. In the run-up to this critical event, the Climate Briefing podcast brings you everything you need to know about the COP negotiations and international climate politics.
0: Throughout the year, we'll also be covering other important climate and environmental conferences, like the UN Biodiversity Summit, and we'll be exploring the challenges and opportunities the transition to net 0
1: societies entails. What solutions exist to help address climate change, and what can major emitters do to reduce their emissions?
0: What are the key themes for COP26, and what do the poorest and most climate vulnerable nations want from the negotiations?
1: To find out, we'll be speaking to policymakers, climate negotiators, business leaders and experts from academia and civil society worldwide. Hello and welcome back to the Climate Briefing Season 2. We've been extended We're back for 2021. Very exciting. My name is Ben Horton. I'm a communications manager here at Chatham House and I'm joined down the line as ever by my colleague, Anna Arbery. How are you doing?
0: Hi, Ben. I'm fine. I'm absolutely thrilled to be back in the virtual recording studio. It feels like a lifetime ago since we recorded the last episode.
1: A lot has changed. It's been a crazy couple of months, hasn't it? But um, here we are still on Zoom and I hope that at some point we'll be back in the recording studio. But we're very excited to be bringing you the second season of the Climate Briefing. Thanks, listeners, for supporting us throughout the whole of 2020. It's amazing to have so many people engaging with the interviews that we've brought you. And uh, we've got some really great discussions lined up for this year as well. So, Anna, why don't you tell us a bit about what we're talking about this week?
0: Sure, Ben. I think this is a really good episode with which to kick off the second season of the Climate Briefing. More than five years have now passed since the adoption of the Paris Agreement, and there are only nine months to go until COP26. So what we're doing in this episode is looking at how international climate politics have shifted over the past five years, and we'll be focusing especially on the role of the three big players, the US, China and the EU, in global climate action. I would also be discussing what the main aims of COP26 are in the first interview. And this is, of course, something that we've been discussing before in the podcast. And in our different episodes, we've been covering different aspects of the COP agenda. But we still thought it would be really useful to have this recap at the start of the new year.
1: Absolutely. And we've got two great interviews to cover this topic. First off, you'll hear Anna in conversation with Camilla Bourne, who is the Deputy Director of Strategy for COP26, in the UK Cabinet Office, and then I follow up with a conversation with Anthony Frogart, who is a Senior Research Fellow and Deputy Director of the Energy Environment and Resources Programme here at Chatham House, and we spoke a bit more about the wider picture and the other actors beyond the UK. We should point out at this stage that the interview with Camilla Bourne was actually recorded just before Christmas, And obviously, a lot has gone on in the sort of climate agenda since then. But we still think that there are some really, really fascinating insights into the UK's position and approach to the negotiations in the lead up to November.
0: Before we kick off, I just wanted to say that this is a special edition podcast that is funded by Carnegie as part of the Transatlantic Dialogue Project which is a joint project between Chatham House and RUSI that focuses on strengthening common understanding and developing ideas for how the US and
1: Europe can better respond to China's rise. I love a special edition. Well, thanks, Anna. Let's have a listen.
0: So, I'm delighted to be joined by Camilla Bourne, who is Deputy Director of Strategy for COP26 in the UK Government's Cabinet Office. Great to have you on the podcast, Camilla. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Thanks for having me. The UK is, of course, hosting COP26, and we've spoken quite a lot about the various aspects of the COP agenda here on the Climate Briefing podcast. But I think it would be really great if you could begin this interview by reminding listeners of what the main aims of COP26 are and why this conference is so important. Happy to. So the first thing to say is that COP26
2: is going to be a little bit different to other COPs that you've seen previously. And that's partly because we spent 21 years working towards the COP in Paris, where we did achieve a global deal for addressing climate change, which was a huge feat. It was a miracle of diplomacy and and really moved us forward. And what this COP is about that is a bit different is we need to see us implementing that agreement. So, of course, there will be negotiations, and they are very important. They're very important for recognising the progress we're making in delivering the Paris agreement. They're also very important in tying off a few loose ends of negotiations. For example, Article 6, which is on markets. There's a discussion around common timeframes, and there's some other component pieces that we'll need to think about. But we also need to do this piece of showing, is the Paris Agreement working? Has it succeeded in increasing countries' commitments to more climate action towards those long-term goals? And those long-term goals are on mitigation, on adaptation, and on finance. And together, they work towards limiting warming well below two degrees, aiming for that crucial 1.5 degrees that we know is so important for climate-vulnerable countries who are particularly
0: vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So from the perspective of COP president, what would you see as a successful outcome at the Glasgow conference? So the
2: number one thing is exactly what I just said, is showing that the Paris Agreement is working. This structure of over time increasing ambition and action on climate change is working and will get us there, because it's not something you can do in any one year. It's something that takes a period of time to getting us there. I think there are some other elements so i think there's a potential of kick-starting some new forms of partnerships and collaboration or re-energizing ones that already exist for example the pan press coal alliance has been very successful at bringing together not just governments but also non-state actors to make these commitments to delivering on the potential of the paris agreement so i think that will be a really really important element we also need to show good progress on finance and that's particularly around fulfilling promises on the 100 billion commitment. That 100 billion commitment is now up to 2025. And that will be interconnected with a conversation about how finance looks after 2025 that will be initiated at that COP. So the quality and the nature of those conversations will be very important. And then, lastly, an element that has been slightly sidelined, unfortunately, which is adaptation and also loss and damage. And these are the areas around responding to climate impacts. I think when the UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, that is, was initiated, you know, all those years ago, it was sort of seen that, okay, we'll mitigate our way out of this problem and we won't have to deal with climate change at the same time. But now not only do we have to decarbonize the global economy, we also have to live with climate impacts at the same time and making some strong progress in policy terms, but also in the culture of countries, of businesses, of investors, of civil society, all doing more to deal with the reality that we will have to live with impacts at the same time as decarbonizing. We really need to tease out the opportunities there. But at the end of the day, in all these things... It's the parties that decide so we play a job as custodians of the Paris Agreement to to create that space for success to emerge but it's not on me to say or any of my colleagues to say this is what success looks like definitively because it needs to be a reflection of what parties put forward to understand what success really looks like.
0: Thank you so much. So the UK hosted a climate ambition summit together with the UN, France, Chile and Italy on the 12th of December 2020 to mark the five-year anniversary of the Paris Agreement. How, in your view, have the global conversations on climate change changed in the past five years? And could you please tell us a little bit about the aims and the outcomes of this summit that you hosted on the 12th of December?
2: Of course, I was saying to you before, I'm a little tired because we're just a couple of days after that summit when we're recording this now, and it was a lot of work, but I think it was well worth it. And I have to say, I came out of it Feeling much more optimistic than I thought I would do going into it, which I think is a really good sign where we are right now. So a few things that have happened this year. So we've really seen Asia come to the party. We've really seen them really put shoulders to the wheel of implementing climate action and implementing the Paris Agreement. So that started with a little bit of a cascade when China came forward and said they'd go to carbon neutrality by 2060 during the UN General Assembly in September. And that was then followed by both Japan and South Korea also coming forward with commitments, in fact, net zero commitments for 2050, which is even stronger and an even stronger sign that we're heading in that direction. So that was very, very positive. And at the summit itself, we saw some signs of coming good on that action in the near term, which is even more encouraging because climate change is so urgent. We can't just punt it off to the long grass. This really needs to be about now as well as 2050 and net zero. So we saw both Japan and South Korea say that they would come forward with new NDCs aligned with that long-term goal. And given what that's done to the NDCs in both the EU and UK, they've significantly increased. I was campaigning for the EU NDC back in 2014 when I was outside government. And that was we were looking for at least 40 in terms of emission cuts. And we got 55. That's a big uptick. And that was driven by that net zero goal in 2050, that realigning to that new goal. And if we could see something similar in Japan and South Korea, that would be very encouraging. With China, China came forward with a few more policy steps towards how they're going to fulfill that long term goal in the near term. And I think there's a little bit more to come. We haven't seen their NDC yet. So perhaps when you're listening to this, it would already be out there, but we haven't seen that come out yet. We also saw some really encouraging signals from some of the climate vulnerable countries. We really are moving beyond a kind of incremental approach. We had Jamaica doubling their NDC. I mean that's just so impressive. We had the likes of the Maldives and Barbados talking about twenty thirty net zero, and this is something we should absolutely look to. We had Costa Rica saying they would do a one point five degree compatible NDC, and in Colombia and and Peru, we also saw really significant increases. And I think it's important to say that we are seeing countries go beyond incremental I think it's very easy to think that it goes percentage by percentage by percentage when you think about emissions cuts but in reality we make big lumpy chunks of choices around our infrastructure and that's really what sets our emissions trajectory so we saw really encouraging moves there on the adaptation side of things we also saw some very strong leadership from a few countries really articulating how they're taking this seriously right across their economy Suriname was very impressive in that sense as well On the finance side, we didn't do quite as well. We saw some bright spots, which I think is very encouraging, but something as a presidency that we really recognise we're going to have to put more focus on. And I think COVID-19 has made this a very challenging year on many fronts, but particularly in the area of finance, as our economies have been affected by not only COVID itself, but also the lockdowns and the measures we've had to use to manage it. So that's something we're going to have to put more focus
0: on going into 2021. I'll return to that point in just a minute. It's really very crucial. But I was wondering if you could perhaps provide us with your thoughts on why this shift has come about. Why is Asia coming to the party? What is driving the EU's more ambitious stance?
2: I mean, it's a great party. Why wouldn't you want to be here? (laughs) Um, I think that countries are coming to the party because it is the future. It is the exciting place to be. I mean, if you read, as I do, of, of a weekend, the FT cover to cover, you'll find that all of the finance stories are now saying this is where you should put your money. These are the opportunities. Go green, go digital, go low carbon. And it's where we're heading. It has so many benefits, not just cutting emissions, if that's cleaner air, if that's more jobs. And I think jobs is going to be something we're all going to be looking towards next year, especially when the impacts of COVID wane. But we've also had all these economic shifts. And so it really is a massive job creating opportunity. And I think that's really starting to come to the fore. We're Also seeing rising middle classes in many countries really starting to push for higher quality of life. And I think that, teases into that conversation around low carbon, if that's energy efficiency, better quality housing, if that's cleaner air, all those different elements. Another very impressive announcement that we heard during the summit was Pakistan saying that they would end new coal. And again, I think that that intersects with many of those really positive dynamics about that is the direction of travel. These are where the opportunities are. I also think there is the beginnings of that kind of understanding where it comes to adaptation and resilience, and this gives me a lot of hope. I think there is a massive opportunity for private sectors, particularly in developing countries, to build out these smaller businesses, these bigger businesses as they come, and also new financing opportunities for thinking about resilience and effectively more effective development. So it doesn't surprise me that Asia has come to the party, but it does show you that kind of opportunity of a domino effect when one country moves, other countries move. And I think we might see more in the coming year, especially with the US coming back at the the federal level and really pushing things in another direction or all of the indications we've seen so far suggest that it's going in that direction.
0: So, you've hosted this summit. I was wondering what needs to happen between now and COP26. I mean, where are you as COP president focusing your energy over the coming months?
2: So, we hosted the summit. We made some really decent progress. I've got a spring in my step. I think I'm going to need it because there's a lot more to do, as you say. um, We had more than half the G20 participating at the summit, but we had the rest of them who did not. And I think we set a benchmark for recognizing that net zero or that long-term goal, if it's carbon neutrality in the case of China and an NDC that aligns with that, that is the norm, that is the benchmark that should be expected from the G20 countries. And we need to work towards making that happen. We also need to see all other countries come forward with their long-term goals and their near-term action in particular, given the urgency. We'll also be needing to focus quite some attention on issues relating to finance we know that this is an area that needs more attention we haven't seen as many commitments as we would have liked at at the summit and there will be more to do to focus on that in the coming year and also on the point of adaptation as I've said um, this is often the Cinderella story of this process and is an area given the way that the weather is changing given the way that that's starting to affect our lives that we need to put much more attention onto it. And then also, we will go back to more of the bread and butter of negotiations. It's been a strange year. We haven't had negotiating sessions in the same way. We've had some really encouraging online platforms that have facilitated some conversation and made some progress, but we do need to get back to that negotiating process, and we'll have to manage that carefully over this year as COVID unfolds and as the vaccines are rolled out. So yeah, unfortunately, no rest of the wicked. There is much more to be done to get us to a successful COP26 at the end of next year.
0: You mentioned the G20, and the UK is, of course, hosting the G7. Your co-president in the COP process, Italy, is hosting the G20. How will climate change figure in your presidencies of these key fora?
2: So I won't pretend to speak to the Italians, but on the UK side, I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's a big opportunity to bring climate change into that forum and have the engagement of leaders. I think that's also something that was really important with the Climate Ambition Summit. You had around 80 countries... Coming forward even in the middle of a global pandemic at leader level to have a conversation about climate change that really shows it is a top tier issue that leaders want to talk about so of course it will be front and center of the g7 and i would imagine the same will be the case for for italy there's a lot of demand to have a conversation about climate change climate action there's a huge amount of opportunities there and i think both the g7 and g20 open up many important conversations and treat climate change as a structural issue not just something that is nice to do for someone else, but as something is a guiding principle for how you develop and how you grow your economy.
0: I also wanted to follow up on the finance aspect. The UK has announced that it's hosting a conference in March in which it aims to bring together kind of big donor countries and the most climate vulnerable countries to ramp up climate finance commitments. Could you tell us a little bit more about the conference? And are you optimistic that you'll be able to really ramp up the level of finance provided? So
2: we're firming up the plans on, on the conference at the moment, so watch this space. But it is something that as presidency, we're going to have to create the spaces to, to have these kind of conversations, understand how we unlock the access to, to finance so that all countries can come along in this ride of climate action. The opportunities are there, so everyone should be able to participate, and we will do our best to, to create the spaces to have those often difficult but very much necessary conversations.
0: Camilla, thank you so much for speaking to us. It was really great to have you. Thank you.
1: Okay, well, it was great to hear there from Camilla Bourne about the UK's priorities leading up to COP26 this year. And now we're going to zoom out a bit more for this second interview and we're going to talk about some of the other countries and actors that are going to be playing pivotal roles in this year in the run up to the conference and to talk about this I'm joined by Anthony Froggatt Anthony's a senior research fellow and deputy director of the energy environment and resources program at Chatham House Anthony thanks so much for joining us today No my pleasure thanks for the invitation I guess this is going to be a bit of a who's who interview, and we're going to sort of jump around quite a lot. But I thought it would be good to begin with one of the kind of headline changes, I guess, that we've seen in in recent weeks in the climate politics picture, which is the stance of the United States. So obviously, the new president, Joe Biden, has come in and is already advancing a very different stance on climate change to his predecessor. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that and what impact you think this will have? What's the significance of this? And what have we already seen from his administration's early engagement with climate change?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably one of, if not the biggest advantage of the delay of COP, because obviously COP26 was supposed to be in 2020. Mm. And if the schedules had gone as planned at the beginning of the year, then we would have had the presidential elections. And the next day, Or within a couple of days, we would have seen the start of the COP26 process in Glasgow. So it would have been a very strange time, probably, with everyone looking at the news feeds to see which way it was going to go. But as it is, we have a year delay. There is chance for a new administration. As you said, the Biden administration, during the whole campaign, has made it very clear that they want to take action on climate change, believe that it is important And that is in stark contrast to the Trump administration that downplayed it from a political perspective and undermined the science. And it's one of the early things that we've seen is President Biden has signed a presidential memorandum on scientific integrity and saying, we want to protect scientists. We believe that this is an important element. And obviously, that goes across other issues. I mean, Mm -hmm. the COVID pandemic as well. But they're very clearly sending a message We're led by the science on climate change, and therefore, we need to take action. On the international level, so obviously, one of the first things, day one, was rejoining Paris. But as everyone said, that's not enough. And I think the other big action that we'll see on the international stage is this summit within 100 days. So on Earth Day, April the 22nd, they will convene a climate summit, which is with the sort of major emitters and tried to demonstrate that the US is is more than re-signing, wants to take a leadership role. And I, I guess we welcome that. It was that Obama taking a strong role with the Chinese prior to Paris that led to a much more positive outcome. So I guess we are hopeful that this is what we'll see, that we will see other countries taking a more progressive stance, making more ambitious changes. In terms of domestic emissions from the US, We've seen some important signals. So there's a target that the power sector will be carbon. I can't remember the exact term. It's either carbon neutral or or no emissions by 2035. So that's a lot of renewables, probably some nuclear, maybe some CCS, but predominantly renewable energy. Mm. A a net zero 2050 target hasn't been adopted, but I I, I think it's likely to be. What people are still looking out for is within the COP process... And what people are looking to, in terms of Glasgow, is for countries to increase their NDCs. And these have been covered in the past, nationally determined contributions. So the US is is slightly different in two ways. One is it takes its baseline as 2005 when, say, the EU takes 1990. So there's differences across countries of when your baseline is. But also, the US in Paris put forward a date of 2025 rather than 2030. So some of the administrations say, actually, we shouldn't be putting forward targets every 10 years, but every five years. And they've stuck to that. So anyway, people are now looking to see what will the US put forward for 2030, because we have no in- indication of what that is. And I guess it's somewhere between 45 and 55% is the ballpark that people are talking about. And that will be really important. So if, if it's at the low end of that, people will say, well, the US isn't being ambitious. But if it's the high end, they will. So we we just have to see. That's one of the, I guess, the next big indicator from an international perspective as how serious the administration is in terms of its domestic cuts.
1: I wanted to follow up on that question of the US capacity for global leadership on this, because as you've said, quite often other countries take their lead from the commitments that the US makes. But Is it going to be as simple as Joe Biden and John Kerry swanning back into these summit rooms and sort of saying, we're back, don't worry, it's all going to be fine again, the last four years were a blip, you can listen to us about what to do now? Or has the discussion slightly moved on? Is it going to be a bit more tricky for the US to come in and and sort of weigh in on these issues? Are the other participants in these discussions be less kind of receptive to that, do you think, after Trump?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good point. And you can look at some sort of academic literature on this in terms of the feeling in particular from Europe that, well, it's a bit of a flip-flop. When we have the Democrats in, we have a partner that we can deal with on climate change. They're in for four years or eight years. Then we get a Republican in, and it's more difficult. So why should we go the extra mile when who knows what's going to happen in four years' time or three and a half years' time? So there is a certain amount of wariness about the situation. I think there's two things that I would counter that with. One is when you have or when we've had in the past like Trump, the Trump administration, there was still action on climate change. So on on the state level and the non-state actors still remained engaged and you still saw cooperation on a number of levels. And I think that is reassuring that there is a degree of overarching resilience in some ways to climate action in the United States. So I think that's the first point. The second point is use the opportunity, is the other feeling. Is it, okay, it may not last forever. We shouldn't build everything around this, but there is a new opportunity. And the US is politically important. It has really important in terms of industrial leadership, it has lots of financial power, and it has influence in a number of regions. And so Countries are therefore saying, okay, it may be short term, but let's do what we can. And so in in some key institutions, so for example, probably in the G7 and the G20, which incidentally this year have presidencies, the UK has the presidency of the G7, and the Italians, who are co-president of COP, has the presidency of the G20. There are other arenas in which US is really important. And I think in particular within the G7 which has avoided climate change discussions because of the Trump presidency, the UK will really be looking to the US to support their action in terms of economic reform and how do we ensure that that is green in that body. And I think the Italians will be the same because the G20 will, I'm sure, have a focus on green on recovery. How do we stimulate economies? And making that green is absolutely fundamental because we will see a level of public sector support or public sector finance for not only sort of indirect financial support, but for infrastructure development that needs to be aligned with climate commitments. I'd like to turn
1: to another big emitter, I suppose, who is going to be very much key to progress at COP26. And and that, of course, is China. And before Christmas, um, at the end of 2020, we saw some sense of heightened ambition on climate, China stating their ambition to be carbon neutral by 2060. But I wondered whether you think this sort of talk of heightened ambition is going to translate into a strong NDC upgrade or a a very large role for China at
3: COP26. What do you think is their role in the lead up and at the conference itself? Yeah, Yeah, as you said, they are really important, not only in terms of their global emissions, the world's largest emitting country, but also in terms of their influence and the direction of travel, because they are in a different space. I mean, clearly we have OECD, have China that has still second largest economy in the world, but yet it still has vast numbers of people that live in poverty. So it has different challenges than those in Western Europe and and North America. It's interesting in terms of President Xi's announcement being made at the United Nations. Many people were taken by surprise. It wasn't something that was trailed, lots of different speculation about when the decision was taken because people in Beijing were, who, who follow these things were also surprised. And why? I mean, in, in some ways it's a good soft power play on climate change is to say, we're doing this. It put pressure on whoever comes in in, in terms of, if it was Trump who won the election, then you have China being very progressive on, on climate change. It's a good contrast. And as we have Biden in, it's maybe a, a good stimulus to say, look, we're already there. You need to follow us. So it made sense, I, I think, on the sort of political stage globally. It's a step forward. We've worked in China and Chatham house for, for a long time. We have very good partners in China. And it's interesting talking to them, the extent to which it changes the thinking amongst the modelers and the people who are planning on energy. Because China is a very planned economy. And there are certain steps as you say, this is what has been decreed, this is what we're going to do, and then you you plan how to achieve those objectives. Slightly different from Europe or the UK, where we say this is our target, and then we think we'll try to get there. In China, you, you will set a target that you know it that can be achieved. And so this 2060 target has meant that a lot of the people working on energy are now working out how we're going to actually implement and achieve that. And so it, it's changed the thinking, In the same way, actually, you you saw that with the net zero when it was introduced in the UK two years ago. If you talk to the civil servants, they basically say that this changes. Before, we had an 80% target by 2050. And that's still really tough. But it meant you could say, well, the sector I work with is that 20% that isn't going to cut its emissions by, by 2050. With net zero, effectively, you have nowhere to hide. And so yeah. from what I understand, we're seeing a similar change in China within the administrations is actually, oh, we've got to do this. And how do we achieve it? So I think it's really, really important in that regard. And again, in in conversations with our with our partners in China, it is materially affecting the way in which the ministries are working, not only in terms of planning, but in terms of policies and measures. So I I think it's a really progressive step. Obviously, it needs to be further and faster in terms of 1.5 degrees. It doesn't meet that objective. But it's about indications of of movement. And as I said, probably it's important in terms of US stimulation, in terms of their ambition. We have subsequently seen Japan and South Korea making 2050 targets. So it has big international political Impacts maybe it's not impacts is probably too strong, but but it definitely changes the mood music in the same way that the U.S. has. So I think these two things the the, the change of the administration in the United States and China indicating its twenty sixty goal in terms of its NDC, it's yet to move. I think we may see in the spring of this year we have the 5 year plan will be laid down in terms of targets. So that runs from. 2020 to 2025. And we'll see what the targets are for, for different carbon intensive sectors. And then that'll be in the spring of the, this year. And then we'll have to see how that filters down on, onto the provincial level. I'd like to shift geography again, if, if I may. And um,
1: I'd like to talk a bit about, about Europe. And I wanted to ask about how unified Europe is on, on climate action. And obviously, a lot of this is is driven forward at an international level by the European Union. And I, I wondered if you had a sense of the extent to which the EU as a bloc is able to approach climate change together. Obviously, there are countries within the EU with with wildly different understandings of climate change and policies to address climate change at, at a sort of domestic level. And we've seen even in the last couple of weeks with the crisis over vaccine procurement in in the European Union, that there are limitations to the EU's ability to act as one at times of crisis. So I just wondered what your take is on that. And do you think that we'll see the EU sort of mobilising as a bloc in the run-up to COP26 on climate change?
3: Europe is, it's 27 countries. And as you said, they have different ambitions on climate change. And that is historic in terms of different views in terms of the role of the public sector and how it how it should deliver change very much related to existing levels of emissions and energy different energy mixes obviously poland is Mm -hmm. a very large economy very dependent on coal coal is not only an energy issue it's a social issue and you see that in germany in particular lignite which germany still burns lignite is a a very so sort of wet coal it, it's very it's relatively low carbon intensive and low amount of energy so basically you dig out lignite you burn it there and then to create electricity because you're not going to transport it anywhere but what that means is you have economies that are dependent not only on the mining but also on the on the power sectors that sit at the top of the mine so local economies are, are, are totally captured so we see that this problem in germany and in poland it's many times worse so different countries in europe face different problems in terms of their transition and the desire to transition in saying that they are very progressive europe has consistently over the last decades been the most progressive block on climate change it's recently raised its, its, its NDC. So it was, up until last year, it was to cut greenhouse gas emissions by at least 40% based on 1990 levels by 2030. It's now put forward uh, 55% cuts in emissions by 2030. Interestingly, the UK, having left the EU, has set its own NDC for the first time and has put forward 68%. So has gone quite big. In terms of its NDC, in part, it wants to reflect global leadership as we've left the EU, and also because we're hosting the COP, it needed to show ambitions. But between them, they have raised their NDCs, and that is what they're wanting other countries to do in the next 12 months as we run up to Glasgow. Worth mentioning two other things in terms of the EU. One is their stimulus package was really about big build back better and and that we we need to align our expenditure from the EU with climate objectives. And so we have that as a sort of activities that occurred during 2020. It was also the end of the the framework program. So so that the budgets are done on a seven year cycle within the EU. And so it just started and in December they agreed the spending for the next seven years. So from 2021 onwards. And in that, you have a 30%, it's 1.8 trillion euros is the package. And under the legislation, 30% of that needs to be spent on climate activities. And the rest of it is do no harm on climate. So that's quite a large amount of cash that is deemed for climate expenditure, infrastructure, et cetera. So obviously, the devil is in the detail. It's not the first time that they've had this target of 30%. It rolls over. But in some ways, that combined with the green stimulus packages means that the EU is trying to align its its whole ethos with climate change. And it's just worth mentioning, I should have mentioned before, in terms of the US. We see that within the Biden administration as well. They're saying climate change isn't just a particular department. It runs through the whole administration. And so we will see uh, John Kerry sitting at the the main, even though he's a special envoy on climate change, he sits in the cabinet. He has that level of position. It's not just an add-on. And we have John Kerry going around the world doing climate change. It's supposed to be really rooted at the heart of the US administration.
1: Now, I'm conscious so far that the conversation has focused a lot on uh, the big powers and the economically significant actors in this space. But obviously, I don't want to ignore the many, many, many other countries that that could play a significant role in COP26. So I just wondered, obviously, we can't cover them all in this conversation. But who do you think I've missed? And which countries should we sort of be watching out for this year, as people who could make a sort of significant difference different points
3: yeah i mean i think that obviously the issues around the developing world and those people that are most vulnerable to climate change and again this is language that's used and that there's lots of controversy around loss and damage in terms yeah. of those people that are affected most significantly by climate change and how they will be brought into the discussion as an equal and i think this is really an important element that takes a bit of a mind switch in some ways and in particular for me as someone who works on energy primarily and uh, i understand mitigation and and i say okay we need to decarbonize the energy sector we need to be more efficient we need to look at different mechanisms how the system operates etc etc and you can sort of get your head around okay how that could happen it's a bit of an issue about political will the technologies are largely there we just need to change the governance structures etc and incentives but that's only part the process and the whole question about adaptation and making society more resilient because we know that we've locked in a lot of climate change already. We're seeing warmer and warmer worlds each year, the temperatures rising, glaciers melting, etc. And even if we stopped emitting now, there's a lag for the extra greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere, what that will do in terms of the global temperatures. But also, we know that we're not going to stop emitting today, and we're talking net zero by 2050. So there's gigatons more of carbon that's going to go in the atmosphere, which is going to change the climate. And we need to adapt. And there are countries that are significantly more affected by that than others. And they have to have a real voice at COP26. And so that is vast parts of the world. I mean, Africa is obviously thought about front and center. It's important to remember the COP27. So the next COP is we're not sure who yet, but it will be hosted by an African country. So in some ways, the politics and, and the landscape, I think, may change this year, away from mitigation, slightly more towards adaptation, which is then also a question of finance. And so that brings in the question about, are we going to get close to the 100 billion finance that has been promised? But again, that and it links then to the economic recovery around the pandemic, et cetera. So I do think that that voice of smaller countries the more vulnerable countries to climate change those that have been more directly impacted financially by the pandemic and the, the sort of economic downturn that has gone with that will be need to be heard and not only heard there will need to be significant support for them and so i think that way will be a issue that we see more of in the next 12 months a final
1: question which is not really about geography, but is more about the agenda for COP26, and particularly, uh, just looking ahead as we, as we sort of sit here, sort of seven months out, what remains to be agreed, or, or what steps need to be taken in order for progress to be made at the conference itself? Obviously, it's been delayed. So in in a way, they've had an essay extension, and there's no excuse, right? They should have have resolved everything. But what do you think needs to be in place as all of the state representatives are arriving in Glasgow
3: for COP26 to actually be a significant turning point? It's a really good question. And I think it's still quite movable, because although we've had a delay, the question about the pandemic, we don't know how that's going to yeah, what's going to happen in the next year, just in terms of the virus, but also its economic impact. And mm. I think this is the one of the big uncertainties. Very quickly, just COP was delayed. It wasn't the only thing that was delayed. So there's lots of other international conventions that were delayed. So in some ways, 2020 was already expected to be a really busy year. And now it's being rammed into 2021 with all the other things already yeah. in 2021. So it's, it's a squashed year in terms of the international agenda. There are yet yeah, some really key things that are planning to take place. There is the Conference on Biodiversity in QMIN scheduled. It was talked about May. Maybe that's shifting again. We don't know. But that's really important because one of the other things that people are talking about for COP26 is nature-based solutions. And that then links with the Conference on Biodiversity. So that's really important. There is sort of global food summits, a Conference on the Oceans, et cetera. So there's a whole range of different reviews and summits that are taking place plus, as I mentioned before, we have the G7 and the G20. So we will see lots of different elements and lots of different points being drawn up or discussed throughout the year at these different summits and events. But I think the main elements that people will be looking to as a result of COP26 are the total emissions that people have pledged, so their NDCs. Do these align more closely with the Paris objectives of at least two degrees moving towards 1.5 degrees limitations of increasing global temperatures. Because the previous NDCs were probably added up to something that were above three degrees Mm. at best. So people are looking for raised ambitions. Some of that will be about pledges for 2050 in terms of net zero. We're seeing lots of countries doing that. But in some ways, it's easier to pledge for something that's 2050 than it is for something that's 2030. So it's not enough, or people won't be satisfied if everyone just says, oh, we'll go net zero by 2050, but we'll be fine to stick as we are, for, and we'll carry on as, as our previous plans were for 2030. So they'll have to bring forward much more ambitious near-term targets. I think that's one. The other thing I mentioned is in terms of finance, how are countries going to be supported in terms of their, in some ways, their their agendas were in place in 2019, adding on to that now pandemic and rebuilt back, what does that mean? Plus then, greater understanding of the science around climate change. Therefore, we need to take more action, not less action. So therefore, there's layers upon layers of additional thinking that needs to be done, but additional support that needs to take place. So I I, I think people will be looking towards that as another key area in which there is activity. And I think the probably the other two issues will be, one will be around technologies and technology transfer, as always. I think it is one of the most positive things that we've seen between now and what we had in Paris, is, for example, what you see the price of low-carbon technologies are in terms of solar and wind and batteries, et cetera. Sure. It moved from something that was in Paris said to be, this will be cheap in the future, to being something saying now, well, actually in many conditions, solar and wind are cheaper than burning fossil fuels. So it's remarkable shift, but we need to then speed that process of reducing the cost of decarbonization so that it, be, it does become the cheapest option to more conditions and more countries. And so I, th- I think the extent to which that can be encouraged is really important. And then fi- the final point is just the thing to, which will be interesting, and I, I don't know how this is going to pan out, but in some ways what we were seeing at least within UK and Europe in 2019, was much greater public engagement on climate issues. It wasn't just the Greta factor, but there was more mobilisation, more youth awareness, more societal engagement on climate change. So will we see that again this year or will the pandemic overshadow everything else? Mm. And I think that will be really important in terms of the ambition of the final result. Will the public, will people be satisfied with what comes out? We will have to see. We will indeed. And we'll be
1: picking up all of those threads throughout season two of the climate briefing and uh, hope to have you back on later in the year, Anthony, to sort of pick up on what has happened, where where things have developed. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for this conversation.
3: Thank you very much indeed. It was a great conversation.
1: All right. Well, that's it for this episode of the Climate Briefing. Before we go, Anna, I wonder if you could just give us a sense of what sort of topics we're going to be talking about in season two of this podcast.
0: I think it's going to be a super interesting season. It's such a super year for the climate and the environment. Obviously, there's COP26 in November, but before that, you know, we have the UN Biodiversity Summit Mm. and lots of other really interesting conferences and events. The UK is uh, president of the G7, uh, so we'll be focusing on that a little bit. Also looking at the G20, of course covering uh, important topics like adaptation and biodiversity and a lot more. So I can recommend everybody to keep tuning in. It's going to be a really exciting uh, next few months.
1: Absolutely. And to make sure that you don't miss any of this, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it, you should be able to. And to sort of spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you left a review or you rated the podcast, or even just told your friends, tell your mum that there's some nice people that want to talk to her about climate change. It would be great. We would incredibly appreciate it. And if you want to find out more about the work that Chatham House does on climate change, then the best way to do that is to follow the Energy, Environment and Resources programme on Twitter at ch underscore environment. Till next time, this has been the Climate Briefing.